0: Good evening, everyone, and thank you very much for being here tonight at the Law Department's Public Event on Law and Wealth. I'm Emmanuel Melisaris. I'm an Associate Professor uh, here at LSE Law. I specialize in, um, in legal philosophy uh, and criminal law, uh, so a, a bit of law, not a great deal of wealth. Um, nevertheless, I'm going to be chairing this uh, event tonight. I'll be uh, your host. Before I introduce our guests, let me Say a couple of things about the, the format of the um, of the event uh, it's uh, the point of it is to well the first point is to showcase the fantastic cutting edge research that is being carried out in the, in the law department uh, focusing on the relationship between uh, law and, um, and wealth uh, and uh, precisely because uh, you know that 's the, the aim of it we 're not going to do it in the usual format or uh, an opening statement of 10, 15 minutes or whatever and then question and answer. But the whole thing is gonna be a Q&A session of sorts, which is why we call it a question of uh, law and wealth. So uh, we'll start, I'll start by asking our panel uh, one question or two each and uh, then uh, you know, 20, 25 minutes in uh, we'll uh, open to the, to the floor. So let me uh, introduce our, our panel. Uh, starting from my uh, left, far left, Jonathan Fisher QC uh, is a visiting professor uh, here at the LSE and has been uh, a visiting professor for uh, a while now since two thousand and six. Um, he teaches corporate crime and financial crime on the LLM uh, program. He's a leading uh, barrister in, in the areas of corporate crime, financial regulation, fraud, proceeds of crime, and tax evasion. Uh, He has been recommended, and this one is my my favorite, in legal directories, as calm, sure, and deadly at spotting the weaknesses of the opponent's case. Uh, So I suppose it's a good thing that you don't have any opponents. We're all on the same side. Uh, Jonathan is a co-author of the Law of Investor Protection, as well as many uh, papers and uh, articles. He's also the general editor of Lloyd's, Law Reports, Financial Crime, and an editorial Board member of Simon's Taxes, a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Taxation, an accredited trust and estates practitioner, and an honorary steering committee member of the London Fraud Forum. He also served as commissioner on the Bill of Rights Commission between 2011 and 2012. Niamh Maloney is a professor here at LSE Law. Uh, she specialises in EU financial market regulation and, in fact, wrote her first uh, monograph on the topic. Uh, so uh, invented with some discipline after it's not, um, uh, not just specialised in it. Uh, the monograph is EU Securities and Financial Markets Regulation, it's now in its third edition uh, since 2014. Uh, Niamh is a member of the Advisory Securities and Markets Stakeholder Group of the European Securities and Markets Authority, uh, which is good to And uh, other external appointments include being a member of the Consumer Advisory Group of the Central Bank of Ireland, and being a Special Advisor To the major 2014-2015 inquiry by the House of Lords EU Select Committee into the EU's regulatory response to the financial crisis, which uh, committee reported in February 2015, and the title of the report is "The Post-Crisis EU Financial Regulatory Framework: Do the Pieces Fit?" So it was in pieces. Mm. Trying to yes, Mm. Uh, uh, Dr. Eva Michler. uh, is a reader in law at the LSE and an professor at the University of Economics in Vienna, where she took her habilitation in uh, 2003. Uh, before joining LSE, she was also a TMR Fellow uh, at the Faculty of Law at the University of uh, Oxford. Uh, one of uh, IFA's research uh, interests is in the law of investment securities in England, Germany, Austria and Russia. And she has done quite a lot of comparative uh, work on the law of securities. Another focus of her research is the law of corporate finance, and in particular the law of equity finance. She has worked and published on, uh, as I said, comparative Austrian English and German company law and on the company laws of the emerging economies in Central and Eastern Europe, and in particular Russia. Uh, she is the author, amongst many other things, of the Property and Securities, published by Cambridge University Press in 2007, and Wertpapierrecht zwischen Schuld- und Sachenrecht, Uh, published by uh, Springer in 2004. Joe uh, Spooner joined the LSE as an assistant professor uh, of insolvency uh, law in 2013. Before that, he was uh, based up the road at University College London, where he did his doctoral uh, research on personal insolvency and worked as a teaching fellow in conflict of laws. Uh, Joe has also worked at the Law Reform Commission of Ireland as principal legal researcher on the Commission's consultation uh, paper, interim report and final report on personal debt management and debt enforcement. Uh, These publications uh, influenced the enactment of the Personal Insolvency Act 2012. Uh, As you might have uh, gathered, Joe's primary field of research is the law relating to consumer uh, household indebtedness with a particular focus on personal insolvency uh, law. He's also a member of the World Bank Task Force on Insolvency and Creditor Debtor Regimes and a contributor to the report on the treatment of the insolvency of natural uh, persons. Uh, So these are uh, fantastic uh, guests. Uh, Now a couple of things about our uh, topic. As I said, it's about uh, law and wealth. So uh, the the question, the big question that we want to uh, address is how the law facilitates the production and uh, distribution and accumulation of uh, uh, wealth. And we're going to do that uh, from within the areas of expertise of each of uh, our uh, guests uh, tonight, of the the members of the the panel. There are some uh, second-order questions that we can uh, ask, some uh, big questions. Uh, So how do legal instruments organise the mode of production and accumulation and distribution of uh, wealth? Is law secondary to the market? Is it always subordinate to uh, market imperatives? So does it just formalize market imperatives? Uh, are there any specifically legal ways of impacting on markets? market? So does it, does it work the other way uh, around? Is there anything about the form of uh, law that may um, uh, perhaps address injustices uh, or inequalities caused by uh, the market? Is there and can there be uniformity across different fields of law in uh, the way that wealth is being produced and uh, distributed? Uh, so, these are, uh, I think, some of the, the, the second um, uh, order questions, but as I said, we'll start from the uh, specific and uh, in due course move on to, uh, to the general. So I'll, I'll start with Niamh uh, and uh, ask her to tell us a few things about her work on uh, household uh, investors, involvement of um, uh, the small guys in, wow. in the financial market.
1: Yeah, so uh, thanks very much, Manola. So I work, uh, I suppose in some respects, in the more kind of rarefied aspect of all of this, because I look at the retail investor. Now, one of the things I try and and pull out is, well, what is that person for a start? Um, what are they empirically, what are they legally, what are they as a matter of policy. But I think we all have an instinctive sense. A retail investor has a little bit of cash. Yeah? There's discretionary income there in some respect, whereas I think Joe would be focused on, on a different group of people. So we have people with a degree of discretionary income, um, and how does the law sort of interact with that? Now, the kind of core question I would ask is, what is the job of law? Now, law can really do two things, I think. One is it can market markets, you know, come in, the water's fine, invest your shares, you know, make money. So it has a sort of a marketing dimension. Or the other thing you can do is it can be much more paternalistic, much more protective if you go in here, go in with the following warnings, the following controls and so on. And, I mean, what you see, this over the last year, to, before the financial crisis, law very much in the marketing camp. So law constructed the retail investor as this Olympian-empowered financial citizen. So someone who had a duty, almost, to take their savings and invest in the markets. Now, why? If we go to the notion of wealth, your savings get transferred into the real economy, you're supplying capital, you're supporting the economy. And secondly, you're taking the pressure off government. You know, you're taking on welfare support. You are saving for education, you're saving for health and all the rest of it. Now, how does law start interacting there? We see things like proportionality. You know, we don't want excessive rules. We see things like disclosure. Information is important. We see things like choice and innovation. Make it easy for the markets to produce lots and lots of products. Make it easy for banks to find consumers. So very much a strong dimension of that. But one of the things I see in my research is that's very tied to the economic cycle. So the point at which wealth is being generated, the point at which it is in the cycle. And all of this came to kind of a juddering halt, of course, around about October 2008. Uh, And one thing I was interested in at the time was financial literacy, So, how can we construct a legal system that is based on rationality, more or less, where a lot of the evidence tells us people can't contract. They find it very difficult to make choices. Maybe they shouldn't be allowed to go into the markets. And interestingly, when the crisis broke out in September, October, November 2008, nothing... You have a deafening silence across every single investor education website on every single regulator globally. Now, there might have been one or two exceptions. Nobody is saying, calm down, don't panic. Sell, don't sell. You know, nothing, nothing. So there's a whole kind of cyclical behavior here. And right now, something I'm looking at in my research is how that's changing. So we focus less now on wealth generation. We focus now on the investor as a consumer, and a consumer of highly dangerous products. Um, you know, they're like consumers of medicines, of um, electrical products that might explode in your face. So we're seeing these big kind of cyclical movements in how the law constructs this person who's engaging with the markets. So a lot of what I try and do is figure out, well, is there any truth in either of these positions? You know, should one or other win? And if so, what's the role of law in all of this? Um, But one of the challenges you have as an academic lawyer is is kind of tracking and shifting these big movements which are very tied to to the economic cycle.
0: Thank you. I I find the the idea of financial citizenship, I find absolutely fascinating. Mm. It it sort of marks an inversion of uh, of the idea of citizenship that we generally have. You know, citizenship through the the market and through the private uh, domain. Uh, I'm I mean, having uh, read some of your uh, work as well. I, I also find it um, quite interesting how various instruments try to protect uh, small investors. It's always mm-hmm. at the point of entry yes. so that's where yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, protection is being offered, yeah. uh, minimizing risk at that point, so leveling the playing field yeah. um, uh, by making it compulsory for investors to take advice and, yes. and, and, and yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Which uh, we may come back to that, but. Uh, I suspect that it might cause all sorts of other problems. Uh, So maybe a parasitic uh, market of advice. uh, Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. And and one of the effects is you're generating a very strong moral moral hazard or a signalling dynamic. You know, you must get investment advice. Well, if the law is requiring investment advice, that has to be something really special. I can rely on my investment advisor kind of switching Mm -hmm. off again rational capacity. Uh, Another dimension to this is you can take it to a further extreme. Um, At the point of access... Manolis, before you buy a share, should we require you to, in effect, have a driving license, a share license? You know, do you really take over capacity by licensing the investor, not necessarily the market? So, yeah.
0: Mm. Eva, yeah. 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 you've done a lot of work on the complexity of the financial markets. Yes,
2: market. yes. So, um, and I, I would like to pick up on what Neve said about investment products being dangerous products a bit like explosives that can explode in your in your hand or in your portfolio. And so what she's looking at is the dangers that lurk from the quality of the issuer. So is what you're buying is the money you're lending to a company in whatever form, that may be in form you're giving money to the company in the form of becoming an owner of that company, and that's a form of lending, because the company then uses the money to develop products or invest in its business, or you can do it in the form of debt. So what Neve is looking at is the, the danger that lurks at the level of that issuer. And what I look at is the infrastructure between you as an investor and the issuer. And what you see there is that this infrastructure is incredibly complex. So when you buy a share, Very, very rarely do you have a situation where an individual like yourself would buy a share and have their name on the register of the issuer. Very rarely do you have a direct relationship. Very often there is funds, there is a fund in between. Sometimes there's a fund of a fund. And more often than not, there's not only (coughs) funds, but there are also custodians. And very often there's not just one custodian, but a whole chain of them. So what has happened, and this is a fairly recent development, and you could say 25 years ago, investments were held a lot more directly than they are held now. Um, what has happened is you have a culture of outsourcing. So the people you make a contract with reserve in that contract the right to employ other people that they will give your money to, and they will look after that money, or they will look after the investment you have bought and so a complex web of intermediaries has developed that um, the holding of assets has been delegated to and this has this results in a situation where it is very difficult to track down the assets you own so there have been cases in London where investors have tried to sue issuers and couldn't because they couldn't prove that they were owners Because the issuer said, yes, you have a statement that says you hold those securities, but we don't know you. We only know the custodian who is on our books, and we know it's not you. And then it's very difficult to pierce through those um, layers and layers of intermediaries. And another example is when Bear Stearns, that was an American bank, uh, went bust in 2008, They came up with a plan to restructure it, and they bought out the shareholders, and they found that there were 28% more shareholders than the bank had issued shares. So what had happened was the communication between the intermediaries in that structure was so poor that there were 128 people who thought there were shareholders, when in fact only 100 shares were issued. And then in addition to taking the loss of the bank having the value, the asset itself, that dangerous product, being worth less than it was, there was a loss that these investors took solely because of the structure through which these investments were held. So J.P. Morgan then bought all of those 128 shares. But that means, of course, that every single one of those owners took a cut or a loss to the extent that the infrastructure absorbed um, the assets. And that is, um, and this is, it's slightly ironic because the problem arose with computerization. So before we had computers and electronic registers, people held shares more frequently directly. And computerization has made it very easy to delegate because you can communicate quickly and that has meant that a very complex structure has arisen that has somehow disconnected investors from issuers. And that's, in a small nutshell, what Mm -hmm. I work on.
0: And apart from computerization, I can see how that may have made things faster therefore more more complex. Uh, Is one of the problems, to to return to the uh, the law, uh, the fact that it's all mainly governed by the law of contract.
2: Yes, it's governed by the law of contract, but it's really difficult to do something about it through the law because it's, you don't want a situation where, like regulation is reactive, so you can tell custodians you must look after other people's assets, but if they don't do it, there's nothing much you can do. And if you you start imposing mandatory law, Well, there's no limits to the creativity of contract lawyers to write agreements around that. So it's incredibly difficult for the law to sort of pin down an evolving market. And I think that maybe, you know, you're the legal philosopher, uh, maybe a problem of the sort of reactive nature of the law.
0: Right. If you're expecting legal philosophers to solve the problem, then you'll have, <laughs> you, you have to wait for a very long time. <laughs> I'm afraid. Give us 100 years or so. Uh, thank you very much, Aoife. Joe, you, you're looking at uh, asymmetries or inequalities between debtors and creditors at the other end, right? so from the perspective of insolvency law. Yeah.
3: Exactly, sure. So some of the issues that I discuss in my research would follow on quite closely from what we've discussed. So far, I guess there are two major differences I would point to from the beginning. I guess I'm interested in questions of law and lack of wealth. So I'm interested in the indebted population, household indebtedness, and the uh, 25% of our population who would have negative net wealth. Um, and the second major difference, I guess, is uh, looking at things from the insolvency or bankruptcy perspective. Manola, um, as you mentioned point of entry protection for consumers entering investment markets. Well, I look more, I guess, at the ex-post position. So what happens once consumers have entered into markets? They've borrowed money and things have gone wrong and they've ended up in a position of over-indebtedness or insolvency. So I guess those are two um, points of difference. But yes, very much in that context, I focus on the asymmetries we have between debtor and creditor, and this is a relationship almost defined by asymmetries. We can look at... um, Information asymmetries, you know, um, we've, we've talked already a little bit about the uh, complexity of financial products and that's very much a live issue in the credit markets when we have household debtors who are borrowing um, from, from banks in, in relation to often complex loan agreements, often some sorts of terms which would not be entirely um, Understood, and there is a sort of a triple, trickle up wealth effect going on in that kind of scenario. We also have um, behavioral imbalances. I mean, Neve has mentioned financial literacy, that's something at stake. And on the one side of the contract, we have you know almost the ideal type of a rational actor which would be the large financial institution and then the other um, side of the, of the contract we have a household debtor who we know will not necessarily always make decisions on a rational basis. So we have some problems there, some contracting failures and these can produce um, failures in, in the market and these can lead to um, certain social costs and it's interesting here in terms of social costs we see that debt contracts are not only born of asymmetry, but they tend to perpetuate asymmetry and inequality and develop new inequalities. Um, If we take some of the literature that's been written about the Great Recession, um, interestingly some people are now coming up with explanations of the Great Recession which look less to the initial financial crisis and they look to what happened afterwards and they see a crisis of consumer spending. Part of this is based on how debt contracts distributed the initial losses from the financial crisis. So if we have a debt contract, we can think of it as essentially a prediction about the future which both parties are making. You know, Both borrower and lender expect that there will be repayment on certain terms. Um, but if things go wrong and if economic circumstances change the law through debt contracts has the effect of distributing all of these losses onto the debtor. So the debtor will still have to make 100% payment, even if circumstances change. The creditor will have 100% claim. If we're talking about a secured contract, such as a mortgage, a creditor will have 100% claim for the money owed and be able to enforce the security. Um, And this can produce negative effects, not just for debtors, but for the wider economy as well. Because if we're talking about losses being imposed on ordinary households, who are parties who are not very well equipped to deal with these losses, these can have dramatic effects in creating a debt overhang problem. So um, this is to do with the idea, like if if Bill Gates loses £50,000 off the value of his house, he probably doesn't change his day-to-day... Expenditure. whereas if an average family does, they're going to cut back a lot on spending. And if we multiply that across the economy, well, the economy can really slow down. Um, so this um, the inequality produced to, through debt contracts can have negative effects for all of us and not just for people in debt. Um, and then this is where bankruptcy law comes in. So bankruptcy law has the ability to actually... Um, you know, um, exhibit quite a lot of redistributive potential here. Bankruptcy laws allow households to obtain debt relief, allow them to restructure their debts or discharge their debts. And this is uh, one means of providing households with a fresh start and restoring them to, I guess, economic and social inclusion. And this should be good, um, not just for these people, but on a wider level as well. So, um, yeah, I guess that's some of the issues that I'm looking at. And just um, when I was listening to Eva and Eve, there were parallels in some of the issues they're talking to. And one of them, I guess, is this big um, debate about whether we should be facilitating access to financial products or whether we should be protecting people from them. And I guess uh, these issues are raised at the ex-post level in insolvency as well. The impact of providing debt relief to households, well, does that mean that this will reduce access in the long run If debtors are able to um, be discharged from their debts. Does that make Lenders less inclined to lend? These kind of debates are quite live in in this area. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. I'm I'm sure we'll come back to the uh, public-private debt uh, relationship uh, very soon, because it is very interesting. After all, debt seems to be uh, the main way in which uh, wealth is being redistributed uh, these days. Uh, But for now, I'll Jonathan, the criminal law is not the most obvious way of uh, uh, regulating markets. So, you know, people who are not familiar uh, in how the law works wouldn't really think of of the criminal law as being uh, one of them, but uh, uh, it clearly does. So how how does it work, Jonathan? Yes,
4: uh, well, thank you. I mean, maybe it should be the obvious way people would think. Um, Certainly, I'm concerned and interested in the way in which the criminal law engages the management of wealth Um, not only in terms of its uh, reactive role as the punisher of wrongdoing um, and also, of course, the protector of property rights, uh, but also as an activator in the prevention of financial crime. And so what I'd like to do is just give you an example to bring, (coughs) come down to to, to brass tacks and tell you a little bit about what's really going on and seeing how the criminal law uh, ought to be playing a role if it's not. So three months ago, um, back in November, the FCA fined Barclays Bank £72 million because they'd failed to minimise the risk that it uh, could be used for the facilitating financial crime, in short, money laundering. And the failings related to a £1.88 billion transaction that Barclays had executed in 2011 and 2012 for a number of ultra-high net worth clients. Now, the clients involved were politically exposed persons, and there's no question that they should have been subjected to enhanced levels of due diligence and ongoing monitoring by the bank. In fact, as it happens, Barclays applied a lower level of due diligence than its own policies required for other business relationships of a lower risk profile. And Barclays subverted its standard procedures, preferring instead to take on these uh, uh, exposed a people as quickly as possible and they generated for themselves a very tidy little sum 52.3 million pounds And Barclays went to unacceptable lengths to accommodate these clients. This is the FCA's words. Specifically, Barclays didn't uh, obtain due diligence information which was necessary to comply with financial crime requirements. Barclays agreed to keep the details of all of this confidential, and their due diligence records weren't even kept on Barclays' electronic system. The FCA specifically found that Barclay's senior management had failed to oversee adequately Barclay's handling of the financial crime risks associated with the business relationship. Now, these facts demonstrate, I would suggest, that one of the UK's leading banks was prepared to ignore the risk of facilitating financial crime motivated, I would suggest, by unadulterated corporate greed and a malign attitude towards adherence to regulatory standards. In this instance, what we're talking about is a breach of the money laundering regulations of 2007. So I ask a question, and that is as follows. When we talk about the criminal law, where is it? Why was Barclay's bank not prosecuted for a criminal offence involving breach of the money laundering regulations? I do not believe there has been one single prosecution under these regulations undertaken by the FSA or its successor body, the FCA. In the handling of individual wealth and collective wealth of our nation, our banks never seem to learn. This is the same Barclays Bank, I would remind you, that the FSA fined 59.5 million pounds in June of 2012 for its failings in its handling of the LIBOR and Euribor markets between 2005 and 2008, and it's the very same Barclays Bank which the FCA fined 284 million pounds in June of 2015 for failings in relation to the forex market between 2008 and 2013, So where is criminal enforcement? What is the role of the criminal law in the management of wealth? More specifically, I would ask this in relation to the UK's leading companies, is there a role for the criminal law in supporting a framework directed at the prevention of financial crime by encouraging better standards of corporate governance? And if so... Can we develop a challenge for us? Can we develop a coherent narrative in which improved adherence to legal and regulatory standards is not simply coerced by the criminal law, but also acknowledged by companies and their directors as an imperative to conduct business in an ethical fashion so that uh, the corporation would no longer be considered as causative of a problem, but actually rather the key stakeholder in its solution, That, I would suggest, is an appropriate role for the criminal law.
0: Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, Do you think that the criminal law is, well, as it stands... On the whole, I mean, of course, there are different instruments of, of criminal law that, that regulate corporations. But is it is it fit for purpose? I mean, you know, one one of the big questions in uh, criminal corporate liability is how to strike the right balance between the incentive to do the right thing and the disincentive to do business at all. Yes, uh, so do you think, uh, for example, um, 72 million. No, well, it's p- peanuts.
4: Um, but. Um, Look, as far as individuals are concerned, I rather think the criminal law in England and Wales is actually perfectly adequate. What we need to do is enforce it. Um, as far as corporate criminal liability is concerned, I rather think in England and Wales it is lamentably deficient. And I think we need to do something about it. And it's not fit for purpose. Okay,
0: okay. thank you. Right, I think we're, we're ready to take your questions. I should have mentioned at the beginning that uh, the event uh, is being recorded... Uh, and uh, hopefully a a podcast will become available over the next couple of uh, of days. Uh, So uh, if you want to ask a question, um, uh, be aware that you're going to be recorded. And it is for that purpose that I I ask you to wait for the microphone as well. So we'll take uh, two or three questions to uh, start with. one will make me happy? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And if you could please identify yourselves uh, and, and if you want to address your question to one of the uh, a specific members of the panel, please.
5: Thank you. Matthias Goldman from Frankfurt University. Uh, I've got a question for no member in particular for any member of the panel who wants to pick it up. And that question is, um, if you talk about law and wealth, is there any inherent direction in the law that concerns the distribution of wealth. My impression sometimes is that there's a certain conservatism inherent in the law because law secures rights and rights are easily to be enforced and to be secured by the law. Um, So isn't it that the law somehow is something that is not really conducive to any kind of redistribution of wealth in society and that this requires rather policies which are always more difficult to come about. Do you have another question
0: for now or shall we start with uh, Matthias's very narrow question, on <laughs> <laughs> the very nature of law? Yes,
6: please. please. Philip Pech from the Law Department. Um, If I may come in on this one as well, uh, asking a question in the same direction. Um, There might be, and I see a certain softness of the law, so that societies and actually the law itself play with itself some regulatory arbitrage, meaning that when it serves society or what is perceived as um, serving the society at that moment, that... um, This is what is decided by legislators, regulators, and maybe even the judiciary in that moment. So uh, building on what was just said, um, there might, for example, be a certain upstream redistribution that we can see because the policy that is perceived as the good policy to bring nations forward, to bring economies forward, uh, is often um, supposed to be keep those people and those businesses that are running the economy kind of in good shape. And um, I think um, one must maybe ask the question whether there can be objectively the right rule and the good law f- regarding the distribution of wealth, because there will always be interests uh, on different sides of the spectrum. Well,
0: okay. oh, this is related to Matthias's uh, question. Yeah, the, the, so the question is whether the law only form, as we said anyway, whether it formalizes. Uh, extra legal imperatives whether the rule of law is there just to uh, ossify uh, things that that happen elsewhere, whether there is something uh, specific to the law uh, that might facilitate the pursuit of justice rather than the concentration of of wealth so who would like to have a go for Well,
2: I'd like to say that from, from the perspective of the area I look at, definitely the law serves those who have the greatest bargaining power and are able to design contracts that protect their position. So you find yourself in a situation where, as an investor, you're faced with some general terms that you can not negotiate on. And and when you look at so when when you speak to institutional investors, um, I I found like talking to people from very large institutions, they're sometimes surprised that they've got the ability to negotiate terms because they're a very big player and they say, you know, I've got this big problem and we don't know what to do. And the answer is, well, don't accept the terms, which has a big player you can do. And then, of course, within their organization, that is not an easy thing to do because the person you talk to is not on the legal team and then, and then this is, becomes a much more complex thing to do within an organization but generally I I do believe that the law serves the wealthy better than the poor and that is for designing contracts but also I think for law enforcement. If you've got more money you pay a better legal team and that helps in litigation and that's not particularly deep philosophical point but I think something that is unfortunately true and there's not much the law can do about it I don't think.
1: I think these are great questions. Um, from uh, sort of a regulatory perspective, which is where I come at a lot of this, I think law is inevitably catching up, but, but when it's catching up, it tends to be reinforcing a status quo. And I would say a lot of the time what it's doing is encouraging almost a, a recycling of wealth or, or a recycling of, of debt, certainly over the last number of years, because one of the things regulatory law, even in the retail space, really dislikes disrupting is market dynamics it gets very nervous about sort of interfering with what it sees as the dynamics of the market so doesn't like blocking innovation doesn't like interfering with healthy dynamics you know diversifying risk spreading it out over the market so it doesn't like kind of disrupting that so if you look at the last number of years so we've had the financial crisis we've had the the cost of bank rescue um, effectively going to the taxpayer in an awful lot of places. So, so that burden, you know, austerity, is being carried by the taxpayer. But then you look at sovereign debt, the actual debt instrument and um, that's being used by states. That's been held by banks. It's been put into investment funds, and these are ultimately all flowing back, you know, to, to the household investor. So, is something another example? Might be um, one of the consequences of the crisis has been requiring banks to be able to build themselves out. In effect, that you have more. Equity type securities that are the first to take a hit if a bank is in difficulty. So banks are now constructing different kinds of instruments which in effect would be the first to take a loss, you know, if, if a bank is going insolvent. And regulators had to step in and, and issue warnings that those kinds of securities shouldn't be sold to households because they're taking on a huge degree of risk. Um, but there's no law against that or, or, or not fully. So it tends to reinforce the status quo and it's partly because of this nervousness of disrupting what are seen as sort of almost you know, unavoidable dynamics in marketplaces. So I think it rarely distributes wealth (coughs) to a greater extent than the market already is doing. It's reinforcing those dynamics.
0: I didn't cough suggestively. I wasn't asking you to (laughs) stop. Jonathan, would you like to come in?
4: Yes, I mean, I can just say a few words. Obviously, from the perspective of a a criminal lawyer, um, it's really an unexceptional proposition, is it not? that um, the criminal law, certainly, when one looks at acquisitive crime, uh, is there to protect property rights. That's what it's doing. Um, It's restoring uh, property to to those from whom it was criminally taken. So in that sense, it's just not an an exceptional matter. Um, I I agree with you. I mean, I'm sure that law is essentially a reactive discipline. Um, We could have a wider discussion about what we think the purpose of law is. Do we think? that it has some sort of um, redistributive uh, aspect to its purpose uh, and I rather think people's uh, views might be divided on that and to some extent that reflects a, a, div- a division of view in terms of even a political ideology of what you think the role of the law is. Um, do you, does, it, does, it, does it have some sort of redemptive quality? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not, as a criminal lawyer, I wouldn't go there. Um, I think what I would say is this, that insofar as I might be arguing a case for saying that um, we should use the law, deploy the criminal law, um, to improve corporate... Uh, Social responsibility, in effect, is what I'm I'm suggesting. Um, I'm not really saying that because uh, I'm driven by the the redistributive process of the law, any form of political ideology. It just seems to me that um, in terms of uh, decent ethical values or some sort of moral value, um, we ought to be behaving decently, and that applies to companies as well as individuals. Um, And and I I would stop there. Um, So, um, yes, I would see law very much as a, a, quite narrowly, um, with regard to the two questions that have been asked. Thank
3: you. Yeah, well, I think I'm, I'm probably in, in agreement with the, the leaning of Matthias. I guess um, partly because Neve discussed some of the regulatory aspects, I think I would focus probably on um, court decisions, in, in applying insolvency in law or bankruptcy law in answering this question. And, um, yeah, I do think that we can see a certain... Uh, reluctance or uh, trepidation to embrace the redistributive uh, functions of insolvency law. So there's two ways that insolvency law have traditionally been thought about. One is that it's um, you know, basically protecting and reinforcing market allocations and protecting the rights of creditors. Um, the other view is the more progressive um, ideas I guess I mentioned at the start of uh, our talk today um, emphasising the debt relief function of the law. Now, um, because the majority of debtors who are use, using the law nowadays don't have any assets or income to, to distribute back to creditors, the debt collection or creditor protection uh, angle of the law has kind of fallen away and withered a little bit and policymakers have now more and more recognise that actually there are gains if we focus on this debt relief aim of the law and treat the law almost as a form of social insurance whereby we are you know, providing debt relief to the, the minority of debtors who have run into over indebtedness and that should be paid by all of us if we pay a little bit more in our borrowing costs, it's like purchasing insurance in the eventuality that you know, we run into over indebtedness later in life. Um, But in some recent Superior Court decisions in in this jurisdiction, which I've looked at dealing with um, some of the consequences of the recession, so dealing with issues like rent arrears, housing debt that has arisen, and even arrears arising in relation to the social welfare systems or social welfare benefits, I see that the courts are still uh, holding on quite firmly to this original idea of insolvency about primarily protecting creditors and seem reluctant to embrace... The redistributive potential and sometimes talking quite openly about the concerns they have about that and talking about ideas like well, well it wouldn't be justified if the debtor availing of bankruptcy was put in a better position than every other debtor who's out there struggling to make ends meet and not entering into bankruptcy but it's quite an extraordinary statement really if we think about it because why do we have the law at all if nobody if someone's not better off from using it than not using it so um yeah i think uh, there there i would say that I identify a certain leaning in the law and I'm um, uh, more comfortable with the protection of uh, market allocated rights than with trying to um, upset those allocations. Mm-hmm. Yes.
5: Uh, Yeah, this is a question about uh, financial regulation. Sorry, I should say, (coughs) I'm Andrew Dyson from the Law Department as well. Um, So perhaps aimed mainly at um, Eva and Neve, in particular following up from what um, Eva was saying about the importance of inequality of, bargaining power and standard form contracts in these financial investments. Um, Something I've been working on recently uh, um, something called contractual estoppel clauses which is a relatively recent um, innovation um, in many standard form um, financial investment contracts where um, the more powerful uh, party, the, the advising bank, inserts a clause saying something like um, the parties agree that we're not providing any advice or you haven't received any advice, even though both parties know that that's exactly the nature of the uh, contract. And the courts have, have upheld these clauses, so to deny the investor um, a claim in relation to um, negligent advice provided by the bank. So that seems one concrete, quite recent example where um, the courts have actually played a role in if you like, entrenching the effects of this um, inequality of bargaining power. Um, a more general point arising from that, that actually, um, I didn't know, don't know what you, your views are on this, but um, Jared McNeil at the University of Manchester has recently written a paper on contractual estoppel where he, he argues, really, that everything went wrong at the time of the Big Bang in the 1980s when, um, going going back, that far arguing that essentially um, once uh, it was once banks were able to act for both sides um, there was at that time a kind of quid pro quo that this um, this relaxation of the regulation allowing banks to work for both sides to be accompanied by more specific protections in relation to inequality of bargaining power and negotiation of individual contracts but insofar as that protection is now falling away then that he's arguing that we're really in the worst of both worlds there. so I wondered what your views were on that We've got another question the gentleman in the grey top and the glasses there
0: You can tweet your questions as well, if you like, and uh, Bradley will pick them up and uh, let us know. If you're too shy to ask them here,
5: please. Thank you. Uh, My name is Michael Sleeve, I'm from uh, the LSE doing a master's here. Um, I had a question about not so much private wealth but public wealth, and I wondered what the panel thought about the Chancellor's idea to use primary legislation to introduce a budget surplus law that would bind future governments to maintain a budget surplus when the economy is growing. Thank you.
1: you. I'll give it a go. Um, I, I very kind of carefully tread on contract ground, so I'll, you know... The health warning as a regulatory lawyer. Um, So, yeah, that's a really interesting point, Andy. And it just puts a a cart and horse through the whole kind of purpose of of regulation intervening and completing a contract that otherwise, you know, just is is completely unequal. And the whole purpose of financial regulation is to deal with that huge imbalance of of bargaining power. It will step in and cut through that. Um... I think one of the answers to that difficulty, and without knowing the case law, is there will be points where it is mandatory to take investment advice. That just has to happen. And if the investment bank or firm hasn't engaged in that, you know, that's a breach of the regulatory area. Um, linked to that, of course, is the difficulty about access to advice. And If you're going to make advice the, the gateway into the markets, make it mandatory, make it compulsory well, the first thing you'll do is create a very strong business incentive to get out of that market because you're being exposed to all sorts of risks um, in terms of having to deal with, with retail investors. So it's a real, um, really difficult issue, and that's something the FCA is, is grappling with at the moment. Um, in terms of Gerard's argument about principal agents, I guess everybody's seen the big short now, well, I really encourage you to go see it. So um, it's a fabulous, well, I think it's a great movie about sort of what happened over the financial crisis. And it exposes, we all, you know, academics certainly, the notion of a principal-agent conflict is riven in financial markets. But this film, just yeah, they're just everywhere. Um, so absolutely. But that is, that's the fundamental question. And if you can figure out how to get, to fix those principal-agent conflicts, you're home. I mean, once you've got that done, then you can default back to principles, you can default back to enforcing rather than more and more granular rulemaking. So I think he's absolutely right. In a, in a multifunction world where you have products being created and distributed and sold, you know, you're, you're setting up these conflicts all over the place. Um, I think one of the heartening signs of modern financial regulations in the last sort of five or six years is recognizing you have to attack the principal agent problem at all sorts of levels. So traditionally, the access point for regulation has been distribution. So the, the agent uh, so the, the, yeah, the agent for another part of the bank or the agent for the collective investment scheme or whoever, you know, talking to the, to the investor, we, it hasn't worked. It's too hard to do. The incentives are too deep. So it's now going up, upstream to the very top. Well, let's look at the product that's going into the system and try and get at the principal agent difficulties there. So at least there's a sort of a diversification of the risk, if you like, in terms of regulation going wrong. But I think he's absolutely right. Um, And then, Michael, going to your point about binding in a a budget surplus, I think I sort of argue by analogy. I think it's really... Powerful point. I think it's political. It's whether or not you can get a mandate to do that. You know, that's a question for you know, the democratic process. Um, but arguing by analogy, that's what's happening post financial crisis. The whole notion of a capital buffer, a countercyclical um, design of regulation. I mean, we, we were hoping that's the brave new model that will give the financial system some resilience. So I think there's a very strong logic to that. But I think ultimately, that's going to come back to, can you get that kind of mandate? But I think it's a, it's a, it's a, the functional logic is very powerful of, of, that, kind of uh, that kind of decision.
4: Let me Nothing make, to add. Yeah.
2: Um, the the con- contract point. Um, so let me say a bit more about how contracts work in these chain environments. What you have is, on the one hand, you have a, a list of things that your custodian is going to do for you and they sort of say in fairly vague terms what their services are. And then somewhere towards the end of the contract, you have a clause that says, and we're also able to delegate the custody of your assets. And then something that says, at terms that we think fit. And what that really means is, forget about our promises at the beginning. Your rights will be determined by the terms that will be set when we delegate to somebody else. And not only that, that somebody else can delegate further. So it's a, they're not excluding anything, but they're just saying there is a, so we will outsource and therefore the other terms apply to you. And this is very difficult for contract law to deal with, because what you should really say is that the terms in, in our agreement with the custodian inform the service levels at all other, the service quality at all other levels. But you can't do that because the sub-custodians, the subcontractors, are not party to that contract. And while you could say um, the contractual estoppel cases, you could say the courts can take a view uh, interpreting regulation that they are invalid, what you need to jump over in the case of, of outsourcing arrangements is privity, privity, of, privity of contract. So you need, you need to tell a subcustodian, by the way, there is an arrangement further up the chain that binds you, and that's impossible. And it's impossible in England, of all jurisdictions, where contracts are literally understood, where, where courts are very, very careful about sort of making assumptions of what parties really thought, but imposing someone else's terms into a different contract, I can think of no legal system that would be comfortable doing that. So it's a very, very difficult, it's a combination of bilateralism in contract law, or like the privity of contract problem, and outsourcing. And once the two meet, rights seem to go through the roof. Like or rather seem, seem to fall down a cliff, rather. Mm. And it's a fascinating mechanism, and it's really hard to see what can be done about it from a contract perspective. And from a regulatory perspective, because they span over jurisdictions, very difficult.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, you said that you don't think there's any legal solution. It's, it's,
2: no, structural no, solution no. Yeah, well, so my, what, what you could do is, is, of course, you could look at um, things like blockchain technology and find a system where you connect investors and issuers <coughs> directly, um, which you know there's just and I'm doing research into that at the moment um, but I think contract law is just with every best intention the courts they cannot impose different terms into a contractual arrangement And the regulators can't do it either, really. They can just say, you know, be sure you outsource responsibly.
3: Um, Yeah, I'll just come in very quickly on, on the point about the budget surplus rule. And, you know, all I would say about that is that we should just remember there is a relationship between public debt and private debt. And that... You know, one of the explanations for how household debt levels rose to unprecedented um, degrees uh, in the decades leading up to the crisis was that this coincided with the withdrawal of the state. And so a lot of services which were traditionally provided by the state in terms of housing and education, well, instead now we borrow money to um, afford those. And also, um, I guess what Need mentioned earlier about taking the pressure off governments in relation to Investments, well, and saving for the future. It's similarly in terms of current expenditure in relation to people borrowing where the state may otherwise have um, filled that role, and also just in terms of keeping economic growth going. If the state is not spending, well, we need to have demand in the economy, and sometimes that comes from you know, consumers borrowing money. So just to bear in mind that if we're cutting down on state expenditure, we may be adding to the private sector debt, and there may be a day of reckoning to come in the private sector, and that's something that we we might also bear in mind as well. And, I mean, we see household debt levels are right on track to surpass the pre-crisis levels within the next couple of years, and we see that mortgage debt is going through the roof. At the lower level, we had a big outbreak of payday lending debt. Uh, you know, when after the crisis, when austerity policy started to bite. So, just um, we need to. I think it's useful to keep that relationship in mind, also.
0: Thank you, Job. Yes. <laughs>
7: I'm Mary Stokes and I'm a visiting professor here, but actually my day job is um, as a barrister in Erskine Chambers. And I guess maybe that slightly informs my question that um, we've been interested so far in thinking about how far the law in relation to markets has some kind of re- redistributive function. And I guess where I'm coming from, we don't notice much of that at all, uh, And I would say that where I see pressure points for the law and financial regulation, two issues in the recent past, and Ava has certainly touched on one of them, which is it's modernity, it's computerization. So I've been doing something today about um, crowdfunding, which, uh, as you know, it's a way in which you use an internet portal to put investors together with issuers of either debt or equity or it could be peer-to-peer lending. And the regulators are scurrying to catch up with it. And I'm sitting in Erskine Chambers devising ways which the client doesn't want to go through the regulatory hoops and is looking for ways around them. And, and the regulators are behind on it because they don't really understand the internet and what people can do on it and the young men who come in are very savvy and they understand it the second force I think I've seen recently is it's globalization and it picks up again I think uh, with something which Ava has been interested in so it's the technical problems which are thrown up for example when um, a company which has got shares listed here in London also wants to list them in New York. Well, it does that through a mechanism called American Depository Receipts, but it is exactly what Ava has talked about, that we don't have an ordinary shareholder on the register. We have someone with whom the shares have been deposited, and then they issue things called Depository Receipts, which are bits of paper reflecting the beneficial rights in those shares. And, you know, technical problem... Came up last week. In fact, it came up on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange, but it could have come up on New York. How does the company buy back its shares? Well, you know, these are not shares; these are interests in shares, and the law is very behind on that. Although I did notice when I was uh, using my often-used source of research on modern problems, which the books say nothing about, which is Google. Um, Ryanair has been buying back ADRs, uh, American Depository Receipts, in New York. How come it's done that? Well, actually, if you go and look at the Irish Companies Act, they allow you to buy back these creatures. And one wonders whether that's some sort of... Ryanair is obviously an important company. I don't know how they've managed to get that legislation on the book. So really, the larger question with those two examples is, is a lot of what we're doing as lawyers... um, maybe just trying to make things work a bit better how they should work protecting people but allowing a, a market to function as it should when you bump up against new problems computerization globalization well,
0: computerization must be an issue criminal law it must be yes. an nightmare for forensic no, accountants uh, uh,
4: absolutely i think everything you've said uh, I, I recognize um, and uh, Your points are so well taken. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. And um, if you've spent your day doing something like that, I must tell you, on the other side of the fence, I've spent my day mired in the money laundering law in France um, and looking at how that fits with the money laundering law in London um, and trying to advise a particular uh, institution uh, as to how they can, I won't say dodge, but how they can make sure that they do fall through the gap, although... Um, that's perhaps a little bit unkind, um, and uh, I just recognize everything you're saying. Um, I think the only solution is actually to, uh, to recognize that the world has changed, and we are the world's got smaller, and we do have these international issues, these cross-border issues, and I rather think the only way we can deal with it is actually to um, increase international cooperation and to harmonize uh, as much as we can. Uh, I don't, and I think that's true in relation to the issues, for example, crowdfunding that you've raised, and also the issues that um, that I've come across. Um, I I think that truthfully is the only way forward which is one of the reasons just to be thoroughly political why from my perspective uh, if you spend your time um, working in this regulatory environment and and looking at the the criminal enforcement of it um, I have to tell you the the, the EU debate um, seems frankly very sterile. Uh, We we need to be very much part of that um, because we have to go along an international route. I don't think we have any choice otherwise we are not going to be able to deal with the problems um, you you have so uh, accurately, in my view, uh, articulated. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jonathan. The, the global versus domestic issue, I think, is very important as well. It, it, it seems to me that it must be important in insolvency law as well. Insolvency surely is governed domestically primarily. Right? Uh, so, a lot of the problems that may be created on the transnational or global level are filtered through insolvency law. So. The, the people who are the receiving end uh, of Latin justice are the weaker parties in this whole process, right?
3: Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting that insolvency was very much um, uh, within domestic lines, at least in the kind of household, personal insolvency sphere. I mean, uh, after the crisis, there were some high-profile instances of cross-border insolvency within the European Union, particularly because in Ireland we had... Um, what was considered to be quite a draconian bankruptcy law. So there were a lot of high-profile uh, stars of the Celtic Tiger years who were trying to uh, seek to go bankrupt in, in England or Northern Ireland in order to avail of what was seen as being a more favorable regime. So we developed some bankruptcy tourism. Um, So, but of course you're talking there about the high end debtor and these were the people who could afford the resources to move countries and to be well advised and to be able to play on this arbitrage between different jurisdictions Um, at the other end I guess Again, taking Ireland as the example, you know, the global and the international very much influenced the experience of the law for uh, ordinary Irish households who were trapped in debt difficulty after the crisis. And I guess one of the ways that manifested was as part of Ireland's financial assistance package. The laws were changed, but uh, under the oversight of the European Commission and the IMF and the ECB, uh, the Troika. And um, we see that there are various different. Uh, interests at stake in terms of the passage of the legislation and in terms of the protection of various different interests within and outside of Ireland and of course yes all of those uh, international political fights are, are fought out whereas um, the impact on the on the household debtor can be quite severe I guess mm-hmm. when all these giants are um, pursuing their own interests yes. Mm-hmm. And I think that was manifested in the legislation which was passed, which was quite conservative and didn't really get to grips with the household debt crisis that we had in Ireland. Mm-hmm. If would you like to... Yes, no, I,
2: I agree that computerization and globalization are a combination that have thrown up a lot of problems. Um, and and I, I I would also like to add that sometimes regulation can be the problem. So... In, in, in my area, what has happened um, and has increased, it's hard to prove that empirically because I've been trying to find ways of finding data, but I can tell you that custody business has become a lot more attractive as as a result of regulation. And the, the, the reason is that collateral, that is securities, is... Um, have been required by regulation for people to participate in exchanges, to participate in clearing and settlement systems. So the regulator regulator has sort of put up requirements to deposit securities as collateral. And, and that has meant that a market has developed of borrowing securities. So you can either buy the securities you post as collateral, or you borrow them from someone for a period of time to satisfy your regulatory requirements. And that has created a market in securities lending. And that market is run or is facilitated by custodians. So custodians are able to generate revenue by facilitating lending. And that is quite a... a good business for them. And that has meant that the custody industry has become a lot more attractive. But, you, of course, you cannot generate more securities. So so what has happened is, and the regulators sort of catching up, that custodians ask permission to lend securities. But they ask permission from their immediate clients. So if you have somebody somewhere in that level, their client will be another custodian, and that client will give permission. And at some point, you then need the permission from the retail investor, and they may or may not give permission. But the problem is the decision of the retail investor needs to be communicated really all the way down to the last custodian in the chain. And sometimes, and the more custodians there are, the longer the chain, the more borders there are in between, that information sometimes gets lost and and so this so this is a, an unintended consequence of an increased regulatory requirement for collateral that has all of a sudden thrown a frenzy into the custody industry and and I spoke to um, banks here in London who said who you know somebody told me we deeply regret having sold our custody arm ten years ago because it was an unprofitable, boring business. It's no longer that. It's a very profitable business but sadly we got rid of it at the wrong time. Um, so, and that, and it's it's hard to, nobody who you know, thought collateral requirements were a good idea would have thought that this would happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's an interesting you know insight into the legal profession to say our role is to make things a little bit better, but maybe that's all we can do.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you. Very, absolutely, great point, Mary, about the crowdfunding thing. Um, so I always have mixed views on crowdfunding because it is. Um, It's one of those classic issues the regulators are getting terribly excited about and an awful lot of policy work and consultations and it's crept up into the international space for standard setting. And ultimately, in terms of the risk that's being addressed you know, there is a kind of a question. So so if you look at, so I'm a company issuing 5 million worth of shares. So under traditional law, I don't come into any of the normal rules about selling my shares because it's, it's under 5 million. And, and the law kind of set up that exemption because, well, look, that's a small number of people. That's maybe, what, 200 people, 500 people? It's not a lot of people. Now, they could all get badly burned if something goes wrong, but it's a small number. So the trouble with crowdfunding is you have your 5 million so you're sitting outside the um, the rules on raising funding but you can reach an immense amount of people through your website with the 5 million so sort of the detriment is the same but it's now a scale issue so you can see regulators kind of struggling with uh, you know the risk really isn't any different it's just it's reaching a lot of people so I think regulators are kind of recalibrating you know how much damage are are we kind of prepared to tolerate so I I think you're absolutely right that you know it's a key issue. Um, The second issue I think computerization brings up is which lever are you pulling and I think regulators are trying to think their way around this so for example if you look at Automated financial advice. So, a lot of investment firms are setting up these sort of computer programs. Um, do you have X funds? Are you in work? What's your risk appetite? And they kind of, you know, it's like a computer program. You just you trick your way down and buy shares or, or buy whatever. But it's it's a kind of a decision tree. And traditionally, that has been regulated as a sort of a, it's investment advice. But, of course, a good lawyer will argue very easily, no, that's not investment advice. Where is the relationship? Where was the contact point? Did they assess you? No, 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 no. Regulation doesn't apply. Whereas probably the right lever to pull is product regulation. You've developed a product, which is an automated advice product, and then that allows you to, to pull another lever in terms of controlling the firm. So I think it's forcing regulators to think about why they're regulating, which lever to pull. And, of course, it's not obvious they're doing this nimbly or in any kind of um, you know, imaginative way. So it is a huge challenge, absolutely.
0: Yes,
5: the gentleman on the back. I'm a public health uh, physician and researching how wealth inequality influences health. So I'm sorry if I'm slightly naive, and, and perhaps this is out of the, the, the box a little. Um, but I, I have been curious for a while... When I look at wealth uh, issues, so this is slightly more political than, than law, but if I'm not mistaken, capital gains tax is taxed at a lower rate than income tax. If, am I wrong there? Sorry. No. Um. But, and if, if that is true, <laughs> <if it isn't, laughs> then I've,
4: I've not heard a convincing... Um, well, I'm pretty good on evasion rather than actually planning, um, so, um, but, but I don't... I think capital gains tax is, is still a taxed at a lower rate than the highest rate of income tax. If, if that's what you were asking, the answer is yes.
5: So given that's, that's what we know, I've not heard a good reason of why that is the state that we've upheld for a while now. And, and I've not heard enough challenge to that um, state of affairs. And, and what is the rationale? Why should capital gains be taxed at a lower rate than income? What is the simp- simple answer to that kind of... Uh, well,
4: I don't know, and I've got no inside track with the with Treasury. Um, I, I, my guess is that it's something to do with encouraging people um, to invest and make profits and be terribly capitalistic, um, I would imagine. Um, uh, but, of course, um, it's right to say that there are some around who would like to see the income tax rate lowered. So um, it, it, it does become um, rather political. But um, I, I can't... I really can't say any more than that because I'm, I'm going above my pay grade.
0: <laughs> well, one of the things that, that has emerged so far is that there is certainly an inequality in the way different parties in, in the market are being treated. Right? So the, the, it seems like the, the weaker parties uh, are treated more harshly for a variety of reasons. Some of those reasons are systemic. Uh, they have to do with, for example, the use of contract law, which is all about the, the will of the, the parties. Uh, and of course, uh, you know relative bargaining uh, power uh, comes into play. Um, other reasons are, uh, it, it seems to me, uh, b- b- structural. Uh, so, you know, again, the tension between the domestic and the transnational or, or global comes uh, comes into play. Uh, so, uh, to put it very roughly, uh, you know, to the extent that I, I understand it as well as a uh, you know, an ignoramus uh, legal philosopher, um, uh, it's it's a lot easier for a big corporation to hide through really complex. Uh, global uh, systems of uh, debt and equity than it is uh, for uh, you know a fellow who uh, uh, you know missed his repayments and is uh, is losing his, uh, his property. Uh, so I mean I don't know uh, whether the, uh, this asymmetry of uh, um, between capital gains tax and, and personal tax might fall under the same. Well, it falls under the same pattern. I'm not sure whether the the, the reasons are, are quite the same but speaking of all that and speaking of uh, asymmetries I, I want to come back to what Ifa um, said earlier but quickly dismissed it but you uh, uh, weren't uh, justified to dismiss it uh, you know it's just simply uh, uh, you know too difficult and lawyers you know some lawyers are better than others and they're more expensive than others so these, these things matter uh, a lot so I, I, what I wanted to ask is whether um, regulators and lawmakers are under uh, Pressures, uh, real pressures by stakeholders in that uh, whole process and whether that actually does make a difference and whether it, it makes a different difference, if you like, in uh, domestic uh, jurisdictions than it does in uh, you know, transnational, um, transnational context. So, to put it uh, you know, very simply, is there some sort of suspect intimacy uh, between uh, regulators or lawmakers and uh, you know, powerful stakeholders?
2: Well, so in my area, the the problem is that um, whenever, for example, the European Union consults, um, and you look through the responses that are published on their website, you find that the very big players have written very polished responses. So they're able to articulate their concerns and express themselves in terms of serving the market. You very, very rarely find people responding from the investment community, you you get an occasional response from a shareholders' association, sometimes a trade union says something. So I think I don't think there's a conspiracy, but it is certainly the case that the very big players have have the means to pay people to um, write to respond to government consultations. And 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 also so so when I I published this paper that um, that I'm sort of talking about today, I published it on a system called SSRN Social Science Research Network. Within a week, I had two phone calls from lawyers working for a very large custodian, and they just wanted to talk to me about theses, and they wanted they didn't want to influence me in any way. They were just interested in the argument. And so that custodian has the means to pay somebody in their legal area to screen SSRN, to screen what is published and to, to sort of anticipate what's coming their way and to sort of find ways of reacting to those arguments. Um, and that is a level of sophistication that's very, very difficult to beat.
4: Can I just something on that? Yes. Um, Can I say this? Really, it's two aspects. I I agree entirely. I recognize what you're saying. Um, On the sort of the the, the macro issue um, between the the relationship between stakeholders and regulators, Well, I must tell you, I've been troubled for a very long while about the relationship between uh, the FSA or FCA um, and those that it regulates, uh, just by virtue of the funding arrangement. Uh, I mean, as as I understand it, essentially um, the regulator is being funded by those it regulates. Now, I know in professional circumstances, of course, that's true of, of professional bodies. But but it just seems particularly unhappy uh, when we're looking at the regulation of the financial markets when the um, FCA, the regulator, has the power to bring criminal prosecutions uh, and uh, is not actually as a matter of law under the superintendence of the Attorney General. And I do think that raises various issues about the way in which we have set up structurally um, the architecture of financial regulation. Now, I know the argument, which is, well, if you want it to be a government department, perhaps you'll kindly pay for it. Well, you know, okay, up to a point. But I'm sure we can do it rather differently because it just seems an unhappy arrangement that we we, we carry on with, and nobody seems to challenge. And actually, I think it's about time somebody put a stake in the ground and said, "Well, you know, actually, this this really is not the best way of doing it." Um, As for for, for, for the paper you published, I have to say it does remind me a little bit. Um, I've been in a a similar situation, not not, nothing as grandiose as publishing a proper paper, Um, but. um, Where I've said something, and it's usually been in terms of the corporate criminal context. You say it's really we we must must expand the liability of the banks, and I will get calls from 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 firms of solicitors, mates of mine who are working in in the field, who are actually acting on behalf of banks, and they are phoning to say, "Are you serious? Do you really mean this? You do, you know." And the veiled threat, although nobody will actually say it in terms, is, you know, um, well, if you really are going to go down this road, you know, you're not going to endear yourself to the banks. Um, and uh, and that certainly is going on. The fact is there are people who are retained in the large magic circle firms who who take it upon themselves to adopt the persona. I don't want to be unkind, and I certainly wouldn't finger anybody in particular, but in reality you stand back and you think, you know, actually you're, you're almost at the point where you're adopting the persona of your client, and that's something really and truly we should be careful about.
1: Yeah, I very much agree with this. I I think in the consumer space, it's actually quite insidious. It's quite subtle, I think, what the problem is, because I I think it's Ian Ramsey has this great phrase about, you know, you you can't get together. It's very difficult to get consumers of financial products politically active and politically engaged. They're too diffuse. They are have different interests. They literally go from Joe's kind of excluded person to my person who's trying to kind of save for their pensions. How do you organize them? So inevitably, their interests have to be channeled through the regulator. Um, every so often, you'll get this, this, and this is Ian Ramsey's phrase, the panicked mass public. So that's October 2008. This overwhelming sense of this cannot go on. But that's happening every 25 years or so. So you you have to depend on the regulator identifying and articulating and responding to a consumer interest and I think a lot of them will do that and they'll do that seriously where it becomes insidious is this there's no challenge so has the regulator identified the investor do they know what the issues are is there a group think going on so they're not in, they can't it's very difficult for them to engage with the consumer stakeholder and then the second difficulty is you have this squeezing out dynamic So you have highly accomplished, highly technical, highly competent uh, market organizations driving the agenda. So if you look at the new thinking in financial regulation since 2008, it is almost entirely in the wholesale market space. Um, And that's where the energy, the creativity, the policy energy, the resources, the political energy, that's where it's been. And it's because of the nature of the policy community. There's been very little new thinking in the consumer space, not because it's, it's not valuable, it's extraordinarily important, but you don't have that sense of a very informed stakeholder community driving developments. So I think it's not so much that consumer interests don't get addressed or they're their, their legislation has changed because it's too costly, it's, it just, just doesn't develop. And, and that's I think a more insidious risk than actual you know, legislation being cut out or changed or, or watered down. Thank
3: you. Um, yes, I would echo those comments really. I think um, you know, I've looked at the problem of legislative capture a little bit in my field. It's often given as an explanation for how we end up with a bankruptcy law for some of the reasons that Niamh and Ian Ramsey mentioned. You know, We have uh, on one side of the argument we have a very united small group uh, in the financial sector who have more or less similar interests in what they'll be arguing for and on the other side we have all the consumers who might want very various different things and how do we organise a group like that so if it comes down to pushing the law in a more financial sector friendly or more consumer friendly uh, direction, well then there's only going to be one winner in that contest. Um, Now after the crisis, people thought, well things might be different. We looked at areas like financial regulation, like bankruptcy, which were traditionally seen as low salience issues you know you're not going to win an election based on financial regulation right it's too boring that kind of thing but then there was uh you know these issues suddenly became very salient and we saw the public paying a lot of attention and then legislators started getting a little bit more worried but it seems that ultimate outcomes from my experience and my research particularly in the developments in ireland after the crisis was that this only got so far and if i've Track the history of the development of the Irish bankruptcy law, and what I noticed was that when um, certain stages of the legislative process took place in public where all the debates were published, and where politicians knew they were in view and knew that their, their voters would see them in view, they were pushing the legislation very much towards a more debtor friendly household friendly model um, but then the, the legislative process moved back to you know the Cabinet offices and government departments, and the final draft of the legislation, meetings with the troika in this case, and the final drafts of the legislation were very much pushing in the other direction. So I guess what that might teach us is that they you know, in these kind of um, quiet areas of quiet politics, perhaps there's greater scope for um, sectoral interests to have influence, and maybe uh, in the more public uh, spheres we can have more popular. Um, interest-taking effect. So I guess what that might suggest is more transparency would also help in terms of how we talk about these issues and how, how we make our laws as well as how we apply them. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, we've almost run out of time. So do, you, uh, do you have any closing remarks? Oh gosh. Mm-hmm. Um, no, not well, you don't really. have
4: to. Um, I hadn't really thought of anything that would be terribly coherent.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, I do. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the, the only thing I want to say is that uh, I still find uh, very interesting and and quite disturbing at the same time the, the idea of financial citizenship, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, it might just be rhetoric uh, for now, it might just be employed in you know the retail investment um, area. But I think that there is a pattern uh, emerging that you know membership of of the community now is. Uh, is participation in, in the market, but of course that's not membership of anything at all. I mean, you know, th- this is you know just um, antagonism uh, with others. There's nothing to be uh, member to uh, in that uh, in that sense. So I do find that uh, uh, quite, um, quite disturbing. Um, right. Of course, we didn't cover the the whole relationship between uh, law and wealth. Uh, we didn't, uh, you know, see the very big picture. Not least because I think that's probably impossible. Uh, what is possible to do, especially in such a complex uh, world, which is regulated by law and is meant to reproduce and distribute uh, uh, wealth, what is possible to do is look at uh, snippets, uh, just some fragments of the, of the big picture. And we saw snippets of uh, the fantastic uh, research uh, being done here at the LSE Law Department's. Uh, by Joe Spooner, Ivan Michela, Niv Maloney and Jonathan Fisher. So thank you all very much for being here and thank you to our speakers.